This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is the film podcast where we see new films in cinema and compare them to films gone by, films of similar genre, filmmaker, or actor, and hopefully turn you on to films you may not know about. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris that you can find on halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and elsewhere. And today, on the 78th edition of Lends Me Your Ears, we're going back in time to 1999. And we're going to talk about some great films from 20 years ago and maybe some that are lesser known and should be appreciated. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian the polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Well, Karsten, this has been a, a fun week of revisiting the film world of 1999, uh, partying, in fact, like it was 1999, uh, and uh, just uh, seeing what an interesting and incredible year for films it was uh, 20 years ago. And it doesn't seem like uh, that long ago, but maybe that's uh, a sign of our advancing age that it, the time just uh, flies by. But I, I was watching many of these films thinking about when I saw them in the theater for the first time or or uh, catching them. One of them I actually saw on Laserdisc, <laughs> which tells you, uh, you know, how that uh, technology was in its declining throes. And uh, I, I've got to say, it was a lot of fun catching up with these films and seeing how well many of them have stood up. And I don't know if it's because the films are so good or because... Uh, we're, we're seeing less progress in movie making. And maybe the, the, the things aren't making the giant leap forward that they did in, say, the 1960s. But, uh, but uh, many of the things that we uh, love and cherish in movies today uh, were still uh, were happening uh, back then. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? I wonder if it was something in the water in Hollywood or just a, uh, there, uh, it seemed like the studios were signing over a lot of money to a lot of super talented filmmakers and giving them a chance to tell great stories. Of course, this predates all the super superhero genre and the the changes in technology that we've seen in the last 20 years. And certainly it predates streaming and all those things that we've become so used to more recently. But there was something about that year. And I remember I recognized it 
and not to toot my own horn here, but I recognized it at the time thinking, wow, there's a lot of great movies this year. And I hope that this was the start of something really great. And unfortunately, it didn't really carry over to subsequent years. But, um, you know, it, there were so much to appreciate in 99, independently and in, uh, in the major studios. Uh, I, on my walk over here to uh, where we record at CKDU, I was listening to, this is something I actually mentioned to you before, uh, the Now Magazine in Toronto has a podcast where they, uh, I guess it's sort of an irregular podcast, but in this particular one that's up now, uh, the film critic speaks to Doug Lyman and uh, Sarah Pauly, both of whom collaborated for the independent film Go, which was all about oh, sort that's of right. rave culture, was sort of post-Tarantino, it has structure a lot like Pulp Fiction. Anyway, I'd recommend anybody check that out if you have some interest in it. I don't know if we're going to talk about Go today. It was sort of on my um, honorable mentions list of, of you know movies from 99 that are worth uh, mentioning. And I, I, I enjoyed that picture, but uh, this conversation is so wonderful to hear Sarah Polly basically make fun of her younger self and how <laughs> strident and political she was and how she resisted starring in this, this American film. Uh, and, and Doug Lyman was so, so intent on having her on board. And uh, they sort of recall the days of, of being on set and uh, what, they, you know, what they got away with. But this was before Lyman went on to make The Bourne Identity and, you know, made a much larger film and sort of launched his career in a different direction. But anyway, all of which to say is I, I, I think we're right in time here, 20 years down the road from 99, looking back at the films because that there's a little there's something in the air. I think people are remembering those great movies from that era. It's funny you mentioned Go because I'm thinking about like all the films inspired by rave culture that came out around that time. Go is obviously yeah. a big one. It, it, that one was one of the better ones. There were others that were oh, not as good. Oh, for sure. And I mean, it, I feel like they're kind of the offspring of Train Spotting, which I think came out uh, a couple of years before that. But I agree. There was one called Human Traffic, a British independent one. Yes, that I remember had, that was one. Was sort of like a one night, a group of young people partying through the evening and. Uh, yeah. yeah, and and uh, and it's funny because uh, Polly is saying in this doc, in this uh, podcast uh, from Now Magazine how her nieces are wearing the clothes that she wore in Go, you know, and she's <laughs> like, "Hey, hey, you know, you're wearing that because I wore it back in the day," and they're all like, "Yeah, okay, Auntie Sarah, sure." <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that '90s nostalgia is kind of the new '80s nostalgia or something like that. Like the the, the the '80s thing is kind of. That's become passe because now it's eighties nostalgia is being enjoyed by the people who actually lived in it now, and and kids have moved on to rediscovering flannels and and uh, flares and ring pops. Yeah, and yeah, fashion like fashion will always do that, doesn't it? And and yeah, we we've become those people that are just like, hey, we knew it back when it was original. Yeah, I, whereas uh, I'm just still wearing the clothes I wore in the nineteen nineties, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, I've got a few concert T-shirts from that era, the, my my uh, PJ Harvey concert shirt that I still wear from time to time. But uh, yeah, I think I've got a Lemonhead shirt. That's still there. You go. There you go. Um, So yeah. So it was. I'm with you. It was really fun to rewatch these movies and have them uh, have them remind me. I actually. Uh, went ahead and wrote up something on my blog listing the top 10, my top 10 favorite films from the era. Uh, but uh, there are plenty of other ones, others that you mentioned that I think are are worth uh, talking about. And uh, I don't know where to, where even where to start, Stephen. You got you want to throw one out there? Cheapers. Well, uh, maybe, maybe just get these out of the way because they were kind of like the two big films that people will remember from this year that we didn't talk about amongst ourselves prior to uh, rolling 
digital. Like we didn't roll, roll tape, obviously. Uh, and obviously, Maybe in '99 we might have. Yeah, that's true, true. That's very true. <laughs> in this very room, um, and uh, here at CKDU, where I was probably doing a show on a regular basis. Um, the uh, the big winner of the year, the big award winner, of course, was American Beauty, right? A film which for many different reasons, has not aged particularly well. No, it really hasn't. And, and we're not going to really discuss further. Uh, and Magnolia, um, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, follow-up to Boogie Nights, um, where he proved that he was more than a kind of a, a one-shot deal. And, yeah, um, yeah, and then he really he really rocked his um, Robert Altman kind of, like, DNA. Like, he, he did this sprawling um, ensemble of of like miserable people living in uh, in Los Angeles and it, yeah it's a movie that I am fond of but I don't go back and watch often partly because of its length it's just it's very long it's, and it's, it's and yeah, it's, it's almost three hours I think. and it, yeah and it's very heavy but one thing I do remember and I do return to quite often is the soundtrack uh, any oh, yeah. man's songs are so wonderful and and uh, those those have have aged really well yeah I, I I at the time I appreciated the audacity of it I mean obviously he was one of those filmmakers that everybody wanted to keep tabs on, um, you know, based on, on his previous films. Uh, and, uh, you know, Magnolia was a big step forward in so many ways. And there was, of course, there's a pivotal scene in the film where everybody starts singing an Amy Mann song partway through the film and they're just kind of or, or lip syncing along to it or whatever. And uh, I know some people really hated that scene. They, they just thought it was, so, you know, what's, but it's like, well, this is the whole, you know, we have this ability to suspend disbelief and, and have a musical moment like that. I loved it as a moment. But yeah, some people, I did too. Some people, but of course, as somebody who, uh, you know, grew up enjoying musicals and still does to this day, like that sort of thing really kind of tickles my fancy as it were. And uh, some people who are not, uh, I guess, prone to liking musicals, thought that was a dumb moment in the middle of a sprawling and, and overlong film, I, I, in their opinion. Yeah, I, yeah, that's fair. And I, I do remember, I also remember the deus ex machina that happens a little later on uh, where, well, I don't even know if I want to say what it is, but in case you haven't seen Magnolia, something happens even more peculiar than everyone breaking out into the same song. Um, but but yeah. if you go back and watch it, there are like hidden clues that lead up to it and it's it's stuff that i'd include in the first time i watched it. it wasn't until i did a bit more reading about the film and that there there are hints about well the, i mean there's a lot of talk of weird coincidences and strange phenomenon and so on and and uh there's actually at some point i think there's like a, a the camera pans over a bunch of books and one of the books actually includes like incidents like the one that comes late in the film uh-huh. and uh, and, but of course, if you hadn't read that book, um, you might not necessarily know that. So it's it's uh, the, the, there's a lot of layers in this film. It's definitely the kind of film that you have to watch uh, more than a couple of times to kind of get all the the layers and, and things that are going on. But great ensemble cast. Uh, last performance by the great Jason Robards, I believe, uh-huh. as the dying father. And uh, you know, and 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 one of the first times. Or one of the rare times, I guess, that we saw Tom Cruise kind of step outside of himself a little bit. He was really taking risks with his career at that time. I mean, in the same year, he did Eyes Wide Shut, the yes. last Stanley Kubrick film, and uh, which we've talked about before in our Kubrick ep- episode. But uh, he was really he was he was not. Uh, necessarily the blockbuster action guy. I mean, he had done a few of those films, but he was really pushing the 
envelope for his own persona. And uh, he's so good in Magnolia and excellent in Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, those are the movies that you point to and you say, yeah, you don't think that Tom Cruise can act? Look at, look at these movies. Look at what he does in an ensemble with other great indie performers and see what he can accomplish. Yeah, and I feel like I need to go back and rewatch Born on the Fourth of July because I think that was the moment. That was the, the and that's a, obviously a, a few years uh, previous to, to these two films, but I think that was the film where he really kind of did a non-Tom Cruise kind of role and then showed what he could do with it. And I, I remember, you know, I wasn't a fan in any way, shape, or form at the time that I saw it, and I was really impressed with his performance then. And I don't think I've really given it much of a, a watch uh, since then. And I think that's a film that I could probably go, or I might go back and find it kind of cringeworthy when I see how hard he's acting <laughs> yeah. throughout the course of the film. But yeah. but at the time, it was, you know, it was a nice break from the kind of the glib action star kind of, clean-cut hero character we'd seen him play up to that time. Yeah, well, and, you know, Oliver Stone is a sort of a take-or-leave kind of uh, thing, depending on how you're feeling. I find him a little heavy-handed sometimes, but there are a lot of the times I really enjoy his films. Um, I wanted to give a shout-out to a couple of other really prominent films from that year that people will still remember, uh, and they wound up at the top of my list, uh, The Matrix and Fight Club. Um the Matrix being a film, I think that in some ways is very 1999 with all the the, <laughs> yes. the black black uh, you know costumes and uh, latex and uh, Keanu Reeves still very young in that film. Um, but it also I think predicts the rise of the superhero movie in a way that the X Men were you know the following year and it was also black leather and you know moodiness um, and then. Uh, and just the way it was shot with the slow-mo and uh, the the sort of superheroics of, of the Neo character. Uh, the Matrix, I still think, holds up really well, even though uh, the sequels were disappointing. I, I don't think that's a mark upon what the, the Wachowskis were able to, to create uh, with this film. Yeah, I do think the, uh, the sequels have sullied its reputation a little bit because um, – and I don't know that – was anyone really asking for sequels? I mean, it's, it's such the first Matrix is such a perfect movie in so many ways. Uh, you know, in, it, in creating a, a self-contained world, in in kind of juggling all these different ideas fairly deftly, and then you know, kind of sticking the landing at the end. Um, I don't know that I needed to see more Adventures of the One, uh, as it were. But obviously, mm-hmm. there is still a world of uh, oppression and so on that had to be conquered. And I guess somebody felt like we needed to see what happened. And who knew it would be with twin albino dreadlocked hitmen? Yeah, <laughs> and, and like you know, uh, uh, underground party dance parties in Zion, the you know the Earth City. I, yeah, I, I sort of felt like there was an opportunity <laughs> there for Neo to become kind of like a. Um, a, in in the Matrix, like in the city where he lived, to be kind of a superhero figure, almost like a Christ-like figure that that convinces people that they're living in a place while they're they're under the spell of the Matrix, that they're living in the Matrix. Like I figured we'd still spend a lot more time in that environment, but the sequels kind of went to the grungy, you know, underground fighting with with mechanical squidios that. Uh, some of the FX doesn't look so great today. Yeah, and and I'm just like, yeah, I just it felt a lot less fun. Yeah, than the, I the, was under, the underground world of the rebellion was so profoundly uncool and 
like unappealing. Like, give me the Matrix. Just plug me in. I, I don't. I don't need this. I think that's why we're such movie fans. Sometimes it's the escapism. Um, whereas Fight Club, it's funny. It was sort of dealing with some of the same sort of th- themes. Uh, that idea of we self-medicate in order to live these sort of civilized lives, but in fact, men can't handle this emasculation, and therefore need to go out and punch other men for for kicks. And you know, all of that. It's funny. I think Fight Club has has in the years since kind of grown to a cult that is some of that cult is pretty unpleasant. I think I'd say most of that cult is pretty unpleasant. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of bro dudes who who really think it's it's like some sort of call to arms and I think they're missing the point entirely. I think that the film is as critical of that kind of thinking as it is of anything else, as it is of a wider culture. It's like it's actually making fun of that um, you know, that sort of kind of masculinity. Uh, it's a very dark uh, satire and uh, watching it again, it's. I think it skewers that kind of masculine identity as much as it uh, is. It you know it just shows the it shows the frustration, but it also laughs at it. Yeah, I, I I have problems with Fight Club. I wish I could go back and rewatch it the way you know the first time I saw it uh, without any preconceived notions and with none of the baggage that it quickly accumulated. Uh, and I, I, you know, if I think about it clear-minded without, like, and trying not to think of all the junk that falls in its wake um, in terms of its fan base, uh, you know, I do think it is one of those films that completely subverts its source material. Uh, you know, I think it, like the original Kiss Me Deadly, the film noir, where uh, Robert Aldrich takes the He-Man protagonist that uh, Mike, uh, Mickey Spillane created, Mike Hammer, who's supposed to be the, the ultimate macho He-Man detective guy and completely turns that on its head, uh, much to Spillane's uh, disapproval. And, um, you know, uh, Starship Troopers is another one where the kind of fascistic intent of, uh, of the novel by Heinlein gets ex- super exaggerated by Paul Verhoeven to kind of basically make us see how silly it is. Uh, and, but, of course, some people just saw it for the right-wing, uh, yeah. right-wing rah-rah kill them all kind of thing. Whereas in fact, it was obviously making fun of that, but that's, that's the beauty of satire, especially when some people don't get that it's satire. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think fight club is in that sort of line of films. Uh, and some people just don't see the forest for the trees as it were. Now, 1999 featured a film by one of my favorite filmmakers. We've spoken about him before on this show. Uh, and that's Michael Mann. Uh, and he had done, He's at this point he was always already very well established as a director of fine, excellent thrillers, whether they were uh, serial killer thrillers or period drama thrillers. Uh, he 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 was comfortable in a lot of different genres. Of course, Heat uh, has turned out to be kind of a classic uh, crime drama, uh, but he followed that up with The Insider, which based on a true story um, about the whistleblower Jeffrey Wygand, who for years worked for Big Tobacco. And he uh, comes forward to tell his story with the help of a 60 Minutes producer. Um, and, uh, he, you know, Wygand puts his reputation and his family, his safety and his family's safety on the line to walk right through an uh, NDA. Um, and man shoots it all like he did, you know, he did in Heat, this sort of wire-tight suspense thriller. Uh, interesting cast, Russell Crowe, who at the time was still pretty new on the scene, but certainly had broke as a star. And uh, opposite Al Pacino, uh, you know, 
know, a, um, a, one of the veterans of Hollywood. And uh, they have a really interesting dynamic, the two of them. I wondered sort of about Russell Crowe. He has such a skill as an actor sometimes. But he was an interesting casting here because I find him so... He's actually much larger. He's gained weight for the part. and But at the same time, he's very uh, – and he's, he's got a – there's that ooze of threat about him and his physicality. But at the same time, he's playing basically an introvert. So there's this interesting tension with him. Like he wants to do the right thing, but obviously he doesn't want to do it and have his life destroyed uh, and his family's life destroyed. And uh, yeah, and Pacino is, uh, is kind of his enabler in some ways. And uh, it's, it's, you can kind of wonder whether he's – you know, he's obviously also doing the right thing. I mean, he wants, but he wants the story and whether he's willing to sacrifice his, his source is, is a question. And, you know, that, that kind of thing goes back and forth. I, I think in terms of, of movies about journalism, the insider really, uh, it deserves to be amongst some of the, the better ones, um, because it really does get to that core of like journalist and source and the trust between the two of them. Yeah, this is a remarkable film. I was uh, really glad to have this one on the list. It was one I've been itching to to watch for a long time, and uh, and it did not disappoint at all. Like it's it's riveting from start to even though the you know there aren't any real moments of like action or uh, pure intensity. Not, not after you know after seeing Heat and the the, the, the famous shootout that uh, forms the centerpiece of that film. Um, you know the the insiders. You know going through documents is, is is kind of as exciting as it gets. But it does somehow create this tension uh, over the course of the film. You know over whether the story's going to run. You know is is uh, Pacino's character going to get screwed by the corporate powers that be above him at sixty minutes and CBS? Um, you know what's going to happen to to Wygand and and uh, and his family and and the threats that are being thrown his direction. You know threatening emails and you know strange people following him around at, you know, when he's out hitting a few balls at the, uh, uh, the driving range at, in wee hours of the morning, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it creates a tension th- through, uh, through man's kind of just a stranglehold on the editing and, and that kind of nervous camera work that he did so well that other filmmakers tended to overuse, but, yeah. but he kind of seems, I think he kind of pioneered that, yeah. that look, that and kind he, of just slightly, you know, not stable, but certainly not on a tripod kind of camera work, but he, somehow he finds the right tone for it. Whereas mm-hmm. a lot of films overuse it to the point of making me queasy. And, yeah, it's true. And, and he's, um, uh, and it's a kind of blue color scheme. Everything is a, is slightly blue and you know that that's the kind of thing and I I think about the insider is the bridge between like the 90s um John Grisham films where in there you know there there's suspense and there's a there's a lot of of paper being shuffled but it's still pretty <laughs> intense and some of that actually some of those films are actually very much worth seeing again. Uh and then the later kind of you know existential kind of pictures like Michael Clayton like I feel like um, Michael Mann does that so well with the insider and he really he, he he's looking forward in the way he shoots it but in some ways it's a very much classic story of like you know of of ethics and uh, and the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we don't always get to see um, on the, the front pages of the newspaper but but uh, clearly this is something that this guy had to do and and uh, man is just just a uh, he's a master when it comes to this kind of storytelling. Yeah, and I'm guessing a lot of it stems from his own experiences of working in television. And and he kind of had a, an inkling of how the, the the inside workings of 
of I can't remember if Miami Vice was on CBS or not, but uh, uh, you know he he clearly knows how these kind of programs are put together and and the kind of teamwork that's required to pull it off. You know, the, obviously there's a producer uh, who's you know like like Pacino's character who's um, you know comes from a, a solid journalism background but has to kind of do the research and and get the sources and and. You know, he, he's, he, I'm sure he spends more time on a plane than he does at home from the looks of it because he's always like flying down to Kentucky to, to check in on, on Wigand and so on. And, and, um, and it, yeah, it, it, it shows that world in a way that, you know, there are a lot of films about TV news and so on, but I don't think any of them quite nail the minutia that goes into putting together what, you know, on the surface might seem like a fairly simple story. Um, you know, when you've got, you know, researchers and fat, fact checkers and then producers, but you've also got the, the in-house lawyers who are worried what, uh, what the sponsors might think and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and so on down the line. The potential, you know, at, at, at one point in the film, there's the very re- real potential that a, uh, a lawsuit could mean the tobacco company ends up owning CBS, which is, is hard to fathom. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, you know, one big company lawyer, lawyers up against another company, it's hard to say what the outcome could be. Yeah. So, um, and, and Crow is so good here. Uh, this is his first major film after LA Confidential. So, I mean, there's a couple of, I think there's one like Australian film that he probably did maybe even before LA Confidential that came out after and a, and a sort of low key sort of romantic drama with Selma Hayek that I've never heard of. And then, then came this, and this was, this was a pretty standout role for him. I mean, mm-hmm. he got all the big nominations and so on. Uh, did get one New York, uh, critics, I think the critics circle award or something like that. Um, but, um, you know, somehow at, at awards time, American beauty seemed to kind of steamroll over films like this. And I, you know, t- two decades later, this is the film that actually seems much stronger, much more prescient, uh, you know, as, as to, uh, what was going to happen down the line. And, um, you know, and for that reason, all much, all that much more powerful. Yeah, yeah, and a full up also to uh, our big ups, I should say, to uh, Christopher Plummer in a, in a oh, great yes, supporting role. Yeah, he's he he carries himself with that kind of presence that you know we know he has, and I don't think he was quite as as working quite as much at the time, but it was so great to see him in this. Yeah, there. I mean, as Mike Wallace, Plummer is fantastic because he's. He's walking a very fine line because he's obviously the face of the show, uh, but he does consider himself, you know, a, a journalist above and beyond everything else. But he's also kind of a company man, and he's, you know, I mean, the, the CBS signs his checks, and and he's he he gives a great speech late in the film where he talks about about how he's not thinking about the next big thing he's going to do. He's thinking about how he's going to wind his life down and uh, that, you know, that this is not the battlefield he wants to die on. Right. His and, legacy. Yeah. yeah. He's thinking about his legacy and it's, you know, and you, you kind of, you really feel for him because he, he, you know, he, I think in his heart, he agrees with his producer, with, with Pacino, who's, I wish I could remember his character's uh, name. Lowell, but, Lowell Bergman. Yeah, Lowell Bergman, yeah. who, you know, who went on to, you know, work for PBS Frontline and, and do great work in the public sector. But, um, uh, you know, he's also, you know, thinking about what's right for the show and he does kind of waffle a bit back and forth. Uh, but obviously he's a guy who's used to playing the party line, uh, you know, while, while still being the guy on camera and the guy who everyone sees asking the tough questions, which are all set up in advance by the producer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now also on my list, and I wanted to really give a shout out to this film, uh, going from, uh, the Insider, which was w- quite critically acclaimed at the time to a movie that was 
maybe the year's poorest reviewed, and that's <laughs> The 13th Warrior, which is a film, in my humble opinion, is a rousing action adventure and has really, really, watching it again, I was so pleased to find how much fun the film still is. It was directed, credited director by John McTiernan, who, of course, people know for his work in Predator and Die Hard. Um, he oh, apparently had some problems with uh, financing or with the producers at some point. I'm not sure what went on behind the scenes, but but the uh, he was adapting the book by Michael Crichton, Eaters of the Dead. Now, Crichton is credited as a producer here, but he's also, I gather, shot some of the film. Crichton, of course, has experience as a filmmaker. And this is, uh, I think, one of those movies that anyone who appreciates the sort of broader, bloodier sword and sandals pictures like Conan or the recent uh, TV series Vikings will find plenty to enjoy here. Uh, basically, the story is um, it's uh, Antonio Banderas plays a, a an Arabic poet turned ambassador who it gets caught up with uh, along with Omar Sharif meets crosses paths with Vikings and uh, their prophet tells them that a dozen of these Norsemen must travel north to fight some kind of otherworldly threat and they must be joined by a 13th an outsider and guess who that is that is of course the Banderas <laughs> character and then he learns the Viking tongue as they travel um, and then they show up uh, at this village, this Viking village, which looks very much like it was shot somewhere. I don't know actually where it was shot, but it looks like Newfoundland or something to that effect. Uh, or it could be Norway, for all I know. <laughs> and uh, and then they, they fight a, a group of sort of um, cannibalistic uh, tribe and uh, who they they uh, they have a, a battle with right into the caves where they dwell into their mountain caves um, and it turns out that their enemy isn't alien but genuinely terrible and weird and the accompanying vi- visuals and battle sequences are spectacular um, this is uh, the 13th warrior I think is a very much underappreciated film uh, and I just uh, yeah I just felt like it was worth uh, worth giving it a shout out. Yeah, I remember this not being terribly well reviewed at the time. It and, really wasn't. And <laughs> and I went to see it because I I think uh, I think I just like Banderas. I thought, well, I can watch anything with Antonio Banderas, who I felt was an actor who perhaps did not get his uh, did not get his full due um, as uh, as an actor, and 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 maybe you know did not have the greatest career. Uh, you know that is his biggest success is voicing Puss in Boots and various Shrek related uh, properties. Azar um, was a pretty big deal for a while there, but you're right, he yeah, didn't. It didn't. Uh, his his A list has been has fluctuated. Yeah, and I, I feel like and I feel like he could still be used appropriately by someone. He came. I mean, he came out of uh, the Almodovar films with with a pretty strong rep and was great in a in a bunch of things. And then uh, I don't know what happened. I don't know <laughs> to his career, but but he was always a magnetic presence. Maybe some people felt he became a uh, a parody of himself. I don't know, but uh, but he's terrific here, and uh, the film is, you know, the McTiernan is, is 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 a director of the kind of action that you know, like when like when you watch it on screen, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he he he's like an architect of action scenes, in the sense that you always know what characters are doing at any given. T- I mean, Die Hard obviously is a, and Predator are both like a list examples of this about how to stage action scenes and make it, but you know, make them exciting, but it make it clear what's happening and, and don't resort to kind of choppy, um, you know, shutter effects and, and, you know, blender type editing where designed to confuse you, uh, just for the sake of confusing you. I find that, that, uh, you know, for solid kind of, as you say, sword and sorcery kind of uh, of uh, action scenes that that, that that are pretty powerful in this film. Uh, but there's also a lot of smart ideas. Uh, you know, I'm guessing some of them come from Crichton. Um, 
originally the the scene where they're he like they they kind of segue into him learning the the, the Norse language mm-hmm. from sitting around the fire listening to them tell stories or whatever, and it's like this kind of segue. It kind of blends a lot of time into one very astute moment, and I you know that's that's. That was an indicator to me, like because it's early on in the film, as he sort of becomes more accustomed to their ways and cultures and things, um, that that this film was had a lot more smarts than people are giving it credit for. Yeah, for sure. And actually, I was reminded of of something that uh, McTiernan did in one of his earlier films, which was Hunt for Red October. They had a little bit of a uh, cluing the audience in to uh, an understanding of of language, and that was. The, the conversation in the in the Russian captain's uh, cabin between um, uh, Sean Connery is there and uh, and that you focus close in on the mouth as the uh, as as they're reading something in Russian and then it becomes English and then you realize oh okay we're going to be able to understand this without subtitles and it's done with in, in a very stylish and economic way I thought that uh, that very much uh, I really appreciated that the the filmmaker was sort of giving us a nod and giving the audience a nod to what was going on uh, and yeah something is done very similarly here so anyway uh, it's it's um, one of the things of course we like to do here on lens me your ears is to to revive films that may <laughs> not have gotten the credit they deserve and I really feel like this is one of them and I just I just did a double check I I suspected it was shot in Canada uh and I looked it up, and it was shot in BC. Oh, there you so go. So that was—I had this distant memory of it being filmed somewhere in Canada, but I wasn't 100 percent sure. And I looked it up, and it lists like Pemberton as one of it, and some other places as its locations. And that kind of makes sense. Yeah. It, it has that kind of Pacific coasty kind of kind of look to it. But right. uh, but definitely seek this out if you if you come across it. Uh, it's it's definitely worth spending your time with. So what else should we talk about, Stephen? I know you saw a couple of things. Galaxy Quest, did you watch in your in your 1999 uh, um, review? I did revisit Galaxy Quest. Yeah. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, and and uh, you know, for example, like I think it's the aside outside of his voice work in Toy Story, I think it's the best thing Tim Allen's ever done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as uh, as the a very Shatner esque actor on a star very Star Trek esque TV show whose cast is kidnapped by aliens who think they really are starship uh, troopers, as it were. And uh, these aliens have been intercepting the TV show, uh, Galaxy Quest, for, for many millennia and or decades or whatever. And uh, so they, they bring them uh, on. They've built a replica of the ship as shown in the TV show and then uh, brought them on board to fight these very savage sort of reptilian aliens that uh, are threatening them with annihilation. And they figure that um, that Tim Allen's character and his crew will uh, will save the day, as they always do on every single episode of the TV show. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the humor comes from the fact that they are not, certainly not uh, equipped for starship uh, uh, warfare. And uh, they quickly have to figure out how they're going to do it because uh, these reptilian aliens clearly mean business. And uh, it's, it's, it's got an amazing cast. I mean, besides uh, Tim Allen, we got Sigourney Weaver kind of sending up the kind of Uhura, Troy kind of characters that you see on, on, um, on, uh, on Star Trek and, and other sci-fi TV shows. Uh, you've got a really great appearance by Sam Rockwell, uh, who plays... Uh, guy. Guy, who was basically... He was... <laughs> the red shirt. Essentially a red shirt on, on one episode <laughs> of, of the show, and, and he turns up at the conventions, you know, trying to cash in on his very meager <laughs> amount of fame. And, and also, he also, you know, moderates the, the panels and all that kind of stuff. Um and uh, one of my favorite things in the whole film, Tony Shalhoub, who plays the kind of Scotty 
type uh, chief engineer on the show, but in real life turns out to be kind of a, an aimless stoner <laughs> and, uh, you know, is not the driven, uh, you know, engine happy dude on the, on the show. And, uh, but he really, you know, strikes a chord with the, the Thermian aliens who have, who have uh, come to uh, come to enlist their aid and, over the course of uh, the, the, the star battle, and it's uh, it's kind of fun to see some uh, familiar faces in early roles. Rain Wilson, who most people probably know from The Office, as well as some select uh, uh, film uh, supporting roles and character roles, uh, he shows up as uh, as one of the aliens. And there's um, an actor who it was driving me nuts. I was trying to realize where I'd seen it before. And then I, at some point I figured out it was the dad from Veronica Mars. Yes. Enrico Colantoni. Yes. Who I gather is Canadian. He is Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. But he's had a great career in television and, uh, and in supporting roles. And he's so good as sort of as math, Mathazar, Mathazar the, 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 lead, the leader of these, these aliens who abduct our, our, uh, our actors. And, uh, he's so funny. Um, yeah. And it was, it's just great to see him in this. And of course the, the late great Alan Rickman as well is in. Oh the my cast. gosh! How did I? By Grabthar's hammer, I forgot him. <laughs> um, uh, and, and and an actor who we don't see that often in is Daryl Mitchell, who's part of the the crew as well. Um, this is uh, one of those films. You know, they they say that satire can be toothless if it's too affectionate. And I don't know. This feels like the the movie that that sort of the exception to that rule because this is the most affectionate Star Trek spoof ever, and it is so enjoyable. I absolutely love it. I, there's a scene where they are on an alien planet and they see these super cute but super vicious uh, alien creatures, and they decide, "Oh, we got to get away from here." And Sigourney Weaver's character says, "Let's get out of here before one of those things kills Guy." <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> which brings it back to. To, uh, to uh, Sam Rockwell's concern that he is the expendable character in the crew. Yes, it's 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 so knowledgeable about, and I think, it, and Star Trek and Star Trek: The Next Generation also is kind of thrown into the mix there because we have like a Wesley Crusher esque character who clearly now is a grown man, and you know, it's, everybody has some sort of resentment about the fact that this is the only thing that any of them are known for. Uh, you know, and Alan Rickman has has it the toughest, of course, because he's got to wear the 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 makeup and the, the skull cap and you know I was a shake you know, I did Shakespeare at Rada and, and all that kind of stuff and here he is opening a, an electronic shop um, you know in the parking lot <laughs> so, so by Grabthar's hammer I've never seen such great values or whatever it is he has to, <laughs> right. it's just uh, you just really feel for the guy and and um, uh, it and, and it holds up it, I mean you know even if effects wise and stuff I mean uh, I find that. The effects are were certain at the time the movie came out. They were certainly better than what was on TV at the time it came out. Now it's about on par with what's on TV now. Right. Um, but uh, but I, I, I you know that's really not the point of the film in any way, shape, or form. And it it, it it's great. And there's some some great reversals where they realize that you know there, there are real life consequences to their actions. And you know you can't just throw a bunch of space torpedoes at the aliens and hope they're going to go away kind of thing. Um, and, it, you know, it has some fun things to say about fan culture and, and geekdom, um, you know, long before they became kind of the, the widespread target that they are now. Um, so I don't know if it was ahead of its time or just right on the curve for that sort of stuff uh, in 1999. But, uh, you know, all that stuff still holds true today, especially because, you know, con culture has become, you know, exponentially bigger and uh, vaster than it was at the time the Galaxy Quest came out. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, you mentioned Tim Allen 
doing such great work here. He, he plays this captain character as such a, a self-important boob, you know. It's really hard to know where they got that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where. Hmm. Winding down this episode of our look 20 years into the past and the year of 1999, uh, a film that I really uh, could not wait to, uh, to revisit uh, for this podcast was Ang Lee's Ride with the Devil, uh, a Civil War drama set on the uh, extreme fringes of the conflict, which is uh, around the Missouri area, um, I guess, uh, so west of the Mississippi, where, uh, you know, it, it wasn't the organized battles and the marching in a straight line of, of uh, you know, around Virginia and, and, uh, and, you know, Pennsylvania and Gettysburg and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was a it was a real uh, just a melee and uh, just a horrific horrific time with uh, with uh, these instead of these organized forces, there were uh, the Jayhawkers, which were the Union friendly forces, and the Bushwhackers, which were the Southern friendly forces. Um, Both were, of which are kind of guerrilla, which were guerrilla yeah warfare, yeah. and we're and you know kind of. Vaguely segued into outlawism in you know where they would just uh, just destroy property and kill people randomly and and you know there w- there was no glory or honor in any of any of it and uh, this film does not spare us uh, a single moment of that the um, the center point of the film is is a huge uh, attack on the city of Lawrence Kansas or the town of Lawrence in, in those days uh, which is still. Uh, Still horrific to, to this day. It is one of the the truly sad moments uh, to come out of the Civil War in a war that was just filled with them. Um, but uh, the sacking of Lawrence, Kansas, where, where the casualties were pretty much all civilian, um, it was a, a horrific event. And uh, you know, a, a good example of why it's why the Civil War is probably a misnomer. There's nothing civil about about this or really any other war. Uh, but uh, the film really, uh, really gets into the heart of the characters who are, in fact, bushwhackers. They are, as history would tell us, on the wrong side. And yet, um, this is uh, based on the novel, and uh, where, where uh, we see the transformation in some of these characters, and some of them not so much, um, over the course of the war, and uh, the the realization that uh, that perhaps they weren't right all along. And it's 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 a touching movie. It's it's um, it's a uh, horrific movie at times, but uh, but it's very well done and was was kind of overlooked at the time. It you know it was not uh, certainly uh, didn't garner any major awards or nominations or anything like that. But I think it was one of the most striking movies of that year, and uh, may even come out on top as my favorite movie in 1999. Oh, very good. Yeah, I you know it, it was in contention for my list, uh, and I know you're not as much of a list guy as I am, Stephen. But uh, but yeah, watching it again made me realize it should really have been in my top ten. Um, Ang Lee directed this. Of course, he's a filmmaker, the Taiwanese filmmaker who never met a genre he didn't like. Like he constantly is switching it up. He just likes to, he's kind of one of those restless creative spirits that he's always trying to do something different, which I really admire, especially since he's such a humanist filmmaker. He's always got characters you can really get your teeth into. Um, and here he has an amazing cast, uh, Toby Maguire, who at first it seemed to me to be way too contemporary for material like this. But he's very good playing this young man. He and his friend, played by Skeet Ulrich, another actor who was quite big in 99 and we don't see as much of anymore, uh, you know, join join up with the Bushwhackers. and uh, But still try to have a gentlemanly kind of 
manner about them. A lot of this, what this movie is about is the kind of the relationship between the characters is very important. And you see how they try to, to maintain a certain appropriate behavior. And uh, even though they spend the winter living in a cave. Uh, and of course, yeah. there's the uh, Jeffrey Wright character who is, you know, is fighting for the South, even though, uh, you know, a lot of the, 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 the people he's fighting alongside were killing African-Americans whenever they had the opportunity. Um, and, uh, you know, other supporting cast here include uh, Jim Caviezel, who's quite good. Jonathan Rhys Myers, who's kind of the, like the, oh the real gosh. badass in this, <laughs> in this film. Like he's he is a that, nasty piece of work. Yeah, that that is one of the most demonic humans I've seen in a film uh, yeah. is uh, uh, Pike, I think his name is or Pitt. And uh, Pitt Mackerel. <laughs> they all have pretty unusual yeah, weirdo yeah. names uh, um, of the day. And yeah. uh, and he's uh, he's a bushwhacker, but he's he's pretty much an outlaw who just yeah. he basically he's just in it because he likes killing people, and that's yeah. you know, and it, he's a complete psychopath, and that uh, he he is chilling. Like any t- any any scene that he's in, you're you are just gripping your armrest. It's uh, he's he's that good in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a film that's interesting, sort of a little bit, and this is not a criticism, but it's it's episodic. Like there are these moments of like high intensity action sequences of horses riding and the shoot and combat uh, in the woods, basically, in Missouri. But there are also long periods where it's, it feels much more just like a period drama, where the people, the men in, are there and they're trying to survive in, in really rough situations. And and, uh, and one of the characters uh, who helps them is played by Jewel, the singer, who is not known for her, her, her work as an actor, but she's really fine in this. Uh, and she brings a certain kind of I'm not even sure if authenticity is the right word, but she has she has a down to earth naturalism that really helps the film. And uh, yeah, um, there's there's a there's a lot to recommend to this film. I feel like it fell in between maybe in the marketing. It fell in between the people who like westerns and people who like period dramas because it has a bit of both. And maybe they just made a mistake in trying to uh, to market it because it because of the fact that it's it's both violent but it's also thoughtful and and uh, and about characters. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to think that uh, Ang Lee made this after, well, he'd kind of had his big breakthrough, you know, for lack of a better term, Western film with uh, his version of Sense and Sensibility. And then, uh, and then he made The Ice Storm. And then this, a, a fairly wide-ranging and what looks to be very expensive Civil War uh, uh, drama. And um, in the in the commentary on the Criterion uh, release of this, uh, they, they say that it actually did not was not as expensive as it looks for for various reasons. But um, you know, Universal uh, Studios put it out, and it's kind of the sort of historical epic that we don't see much these days because the people who have that kind of money to make them aren't that interested in making a film that could potentially have such a small audience. But but at that time, and you know, so uh, and I think the studios were kind of segueing into the kind of studio films we see now. Uh, but uh, it was it was made by Universal, so there was some money behind it. But at the same time, they didn't really know what to do with it. And I, apparently Ang Lee kind of fought tooth and nail with them over the direction of the film and the tone of the film. And, you know, obviously he was making something very literary, being, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing he liked to make. And, of course, he would, after this, would... would, would uh, Rise like a phoenix from the ashes, as it were, with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but uh, which, which of course was just a monstrous success that no one, you know, could have seen like a, a historical, old school type um, martial arts film 
uh, but made, you know, poetically made could be the kind of hit that it was. And, and it still today is still a, a, a great movie, but, um, but, but this film, uh, universal kind of just dumped it. Uh, you know, they didn't go to bat for it and they forced changes on it that, uh, the director didn't agree with, and, and the director's cut that's out now uh, through Criterion um, and presumably elsewhere, uh, presumably that's the favored cut that uh, that you can watch, uh, is it makes a lot more sense. There was some more expository stuff at the start that uh, makes it a little clearer what's at stake. You know, the fact that there are Southerners, there were Southerners, especially in Missouri when you're kind of on west of the Deep South kind of thing, who are pro-South, pro they're, they're still anti-slavery, but they're for the South kind of thing. Like, they, they feel that maybe slavery will just kind of die out on its own somehow, um, which, of course, is fairly misguided thinking. But, um, you know, there were Southern abolitionists, of course, and, um, you know, it, it, it in, in a very short kind of sort of outdoor picnic scene, I guess, you, you hear dialogue that... Uh, in, in a very brief time gives you an idea of what a complex argument uh, the civil, it wasn't just, you know, we're pro-slavery and we're anti-slavery. It was a lot more complex than that. And of course, Jeffrey Wright's character, which, you know, in the end is, is the kind of uh, the, the main character that you kind of feel the most for over the course of the film. Um, I feel, um, you know, he, he's obviously, you know, very conflicted about his role in this whole endeavor. And, uh, and uh, you know, we, we see that he, you know, he does, you know, he does want freedom and he does uh, want to be his own man. And, and uh, that's that's the sort of main thread that really resonates today. Yeah. And there are plans. He has plans for his future, too, which I, yes. I find it, there's a wonderfully touching moment towards the end of the film where he's been through all this stuff with the Tobey Maguire character. and But, you know, there's still like this social definitely they're not on the same level. And and we're constantly being reminded of that. And then uh, he reveals that he has a dream but he wants to go down to Texas. And uh, anyway, all of which to say without saying more about that and spoiling it potentially, uh, it, it's, it, it's, quite, it's quite affecting. Um, now, Stephen, we're coming sl- quite rapidly to the end <laughs> yes, of our very, podcast. Very near there. And, uh, you know, I've got a few films on my list uh, and you've got a few films on your list, uh, you know, that we haven't talked about. My, I'm a big fan of, of Election. Um, I'm also a big fan of... Uh, uh, Topsy Turvy, the Mike Lee film, being John Malkovich. Um, on your list, I know you mentioned um, uh, The Straight Story, one of David Lynch's yes. least peculiar films, came out <laughs> in 1999, uh, which is a quite a wonderful film. Uh, Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog, um, you know, The Muse, which is an Albert Brooks film that's very hard to find these days. I, I gather you went looking for it, but didn't have much luck. Uh, well, there was a copy at the Hellvex Library, but it appears to have gone by the wayside. So oh, like I'm sorry to hear that. Like it, I put it on request, and it, but it said there was like zero, zero copy. So it was in their system at one time and it's, it's no longer there, but, oh. um, and, and it's, it was a film that kind of came and went without a trace at the time. You know, when Albert Brooks was on, I thought was on a pretty good run there, uh, you know, with defending your life. And, uh, I think mother might've come out after that with the uh, Debbie Reynolds, but, um, but this film where he plays a writer with writer's block and Andy McDowell, I think comes along and, uh, somehow pulls him out of it. Um, you know, may- maybe it wasn't quite the comedy that people expected. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, Sharon Stone's in it. I know that much. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to hopefully catching up with that at some point. Um, 
Bringing Out the Dead was one of the first films that came to mind when I was thinking of this year. It's a first of all, it's a Martin Scorsese film, which you know instantly would put it in some sort of pantheon, I guess. But uh, it's a film that was you know was not a hit at the time. It features a great Nicolas Cage performance as a, a New York City ambulance driver who is beyond burnt out. He is hallucinating, and uh, you know as he sees, he thinks he sees. It's kind of like the Sixth Sense. He thinks he sees the ghosts of people whose lives he failed to 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 save, and he's so he's burdened with this guilt about being unable to save lives the way he thought he would be able to when he became a paramedic. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, it's, it's almost like a ghost story or like a, a horror film at times. It's, 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 um, it's the film where, uh, Martin Scorsese gets to wear his love of Italian horror filmmaker, Mario Bava on his, on his sleeve most uh, readily in terms of his use of color and, and, uh, and ghostly imagery. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's got a lot of humor and a lot of dark humor. Uh, you know, John Goodman plays his partner for a part of the film, and he's terrific. And Ving, it, Ving Rhames is in it too, isn't he? Yeah, Ving Rhames comes on as a later uh, uh, fellow ambulance driver who's very religious, but also kind of not. You know, he kind of goes from being lascivious to religious at the the drop of a hat, and uh, just has some great some great dialogue. And Nicolas Cage is fantastic. He he underplays it. You know, it's 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 not the kind of wild eyed Nicolas Cage uh, performance that he often gets cited for. He's, he's very much this, this guy who's just completely burnt out and you kind of feel it through the, the course of the film. Plus you get this, you know, hectic view of the, the overburdened uh, medical system. And uh, it, it, it's just a great film on so many levels. I've, and it's, it's not on Blu-ray. I think, you know, the DVD is fairly easy to find at this film and I'm sure it's available through various uh, streaming sources, but uh, it, it's not that hard a film to find, but I'm, 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 kind of astonished that it hasn't gotten the kind of respect it deserves. Well, that wraps up a, a very quick sprint through the films of 1999. And there's so many films on our lists that we didn't even get close to. Uh, things like The Limey, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, a very fine Jim Jarmusch film. Uh, I have... Uh, I have King of Comedy, uh, a Hong Kong comedy by Stephen Chow. That is uh, a great, uh, maybe perhaps overlooked film from that period. Uh, Office Space came out in 1999, uh, a film that, uh, you know, even though we don't love Mel Gibson so much these days, uh, the thriller Payback, um, based on the same source material as the novel Point Blank, by, or the movie Point Blank by John Borman, um, which was uh, a contentious film at the time because of disputes with the director and, and so on, but uh, I think is, is a fine kind of crime drama from that period that is worth a revisit. There's, there's so many others. Oh yeah, there's the Thomas Crown Affair, Three Kings, uh, the Blair Witch Project came out in 1999. So, you know, um, and I've got a little soft spot for the South Park movie. So, oh, you sure. Know, go, go, you know, there's that, that made me, still makes me laugh outrageously and uproariously because uh, it's just, it's something to see. Well, it's, you know, Blair Witch Project certainly threw a monkey wrench into things <laughs> for, for many years to come after, you know, that's maybe one of the films that changed the the way of, of filmmaking. A lot more shaky cam, basically. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, and the mockumentary... And uh, mockumentaries and found footage. You know, found footage, yeah, which some of that... Some of that I'm not so fond of, but you know, it's you can't you can't help but but uh, not tip your hat to a film that was as influential as that was. Well, we we hope you enjoyed this walk down memory lane. Maybe it'll inspire you to go check out a list of films from that year and and kind of take a wander through them and and, and uh, see how far we've come and how far we haven't come uh, in so many ways uh, since that year. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me online on Twitter at 
N-S underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And of course, uh, Karsten, you have a Twitter account tied into your blog. I do. It's uh, Flaw on the Iris, and a lo- uh, Lens of Me Your Ears also has a Twitter account, too. So there's plenty of ways to find us on Twitter. We also have a Facebook page, and uh, you know we try to post on it reasonably regularly. Feel free to, to chime in on there. And uh, what else? We also have a Patreon uh, account. You can log into that, and uh, if you enjoy the show, throw us a, a buck or two to show your appreciation. Uh, and uh, there is an email, lensmeyourears at gmail.com. Uh, which we almost we, never check Which it. we've never checked, because <laughs> I don't know if we have access to that or not. So we'll have to double check and see if there's anything in there. Um, At some point. Because yeah. we, we actually did get some fan mail this week, which was very encouraging. So. Yeah, it was very welcome. Uh, so that was that was nice to hear. And of course, uh, as always, we like to thank the folks up here at CKDU 88.1 FM, CKDU.ca, uh, for the use of their studio and for airing the show every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And the wonderful folks at Village Sound and the Village Soundcast Network who put it all together for you. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>